what Rome did was they believed that they were chosen to bring about worldwide peace and security through force, through military might, through law and order. And here's how they did it. They would send their troops to the edge of the empire and they would call the heads of that foreign country that were right outside the borders of their own empire and they would say to the leader of that country, we bring you good news of peace. And here's what we're asking you to do. Come under the umbrella of the Roman Empire and we will guarantee you peace and security. And if any of your enemies from the outside attack you, we'll be there to protect you. Now that's pretty good news. And all you have to do is submit and say, Caesar is Lord. And whatever gods you have, we'll bring them into the pantheon of Roman gods. And you can just continue to worship your god under a different name or whatever. And uh, so this is what we're asking you to do. And if the head of that country said, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then Rome would send their military in and they would attack them and take them over and tax them. And they would be subservient to the Roman Empire. So they had a good news, but it wasn't really good news. You know, uh, It's the kind of good news that the Mafia brings. I always think of that as the Mafia message of good news, where you know, they come to a guy's business and they say, uh, we want to protect you. And here's what you have to just have, it's going to cost you, you know, three hundred dollars a month for protection. And you say, "Well, I don't need an insurance protection engine." Uh, and then guess what happens? Well, the next week your business is bombed. Who are they protecting you against? Themselves. They're protecting you against themselves. So uh, this was Rome's gospel. Now this hymn claims that Jesus is the Son of God. The same titles that are associated with Caesar are ascribed to Jesus uh, in this, this hymn. Okay? And these words in this hymn uh, challenge Rome's claim and Rome's right to rule the world. Now if you get that, I think it will all just fall into place. It will make a little bit of sense to you. Okay? So the outline of our passage today is... Verses 15 through 17, stanza 1, which says Christ is the ruler over creation. Christ is the ruler over creation, not Caesar. And then verses 18 through 20, stanza 2, Christ is the ruler over the church. So this is a song, two stanza song. It would have been sung in the early church on Sundays. This would be one of the songs. Today we sang a song. Every week they sang songs. They had a meal that lasted about an hour and a half and then another hour and a half for two hours of ministry. And during the second portion of the worship service, they would be singing these songs. So this is the song, stanza one, Christ over creation. Now look at verse 15. He, meaning the Son, you go back to verse 13, at the end of verse 13, it talks about God's Son. And this is referring to Him now in verse 16. For by Him, that's the Son, or verse 15, he, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, not Caesar. Caesar claimed to be the Son of God. 
He claimed to be uh, Jupiter's representative on Earth. If you've seen Caesar, you saw Jupiter. You knew what Jupiter was like because Caesar represented Jupiter's will. Now that word image there is the, uh, the Greek word from which we get our word icon. Okay? And an icon is simply an image. And the image of the emperor was plastered throughout the empire. Everywhere you looked was his image. If you uh, looked on statues, there was images of Caesar. On the coins, there was images of Caesar. Jewelry had images of Caesar. Uh, frescoes in people's dining rooms had images of Caesar. When they ate their meals, they always looked at Caesar because there were frescoes on their wall with images of Caesar and the Roman heroes and the Roman gods. In the marketplace, there were images of Caesar. In the palaces, in the temple, in the gymnasium, in the bathhouses, everywhere you looked, there was the image of Caesar. Now, you remember when we were in Iraq, and when our cameras spanned Iraq, everywhere you looked, there was an image of Saddam Hussein. Do you remember that? A friend of mine who was my mentor, used to be my mentor, and a former professor, wrote an article in World Vision magazine in 1970, there's a great big picture of Chairman Mao on the cover of World Vision magazine. And my professor went to China when Mao was still running the show. And he has this lead article. And it's called The Red Redeemer. And he tells about how Mao's picture is everywhere. And I'm only going to read two sentences of this article. Finally, the significance of the all-pervasive portrait of Chairman Mao goes beyond your idolizing propaganda. His character, word, and spirit are divinely omnipotent or omnipresent. Everywhere you look, there is his presence. Everywhere in the entire society. Listen to this. This is how he ends his article. In hotel rooms, Mao's picture painted on the transom glows at night when the light is switched off. <laughs> Thus, even in sleep, the weary traveler takes Mao's hallowed presence with him into his dreams to be refreshed by China's new God during the night of unconscious hours. This is what dictators do. This is what people who think that they are divine do. They plaster that they're God's representative. They plaster their pictures all over society. And that is what Caesar did. Caesar was omnipresent. His images were plastered all over. This passage in verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, not Caesar, reveals what the true God is like. And so we see that, and then it goes on to say in verse 15, He is the firstborn over all creation. Now the Jehovah's Witness used that verse right there to say Jesus is part of creation. But it doesn't say he's the firstborn of creation, does it? What's it say? He's the firstborn over creation. And there's a difference. Okay? 
Firstborn does not mean first created. It has nothing to do with origins. Now listen carefully. Firstborn has to do with rank. It has to do with superiority. It has to do with position. I'm going to give you an illustration that will just prove this in a graphic way. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 41. Now you'll see what I mean by the word firstborn and how it has to do with rank, not origin. Genesis chapter 41. And look at verse 51. Genesis 41, 51. So you always have to interpret what firstborn means in context. Okay? So... I have a son who's my firstborn son. That's Aaron. He's the first one that we created. You know? That's what it means in light of creation. But this, this watch this, verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. So Joseph has a couple kids, and his firstborn is who? That's the oldest. For God has made me forget all my toil, all my father's house. And the name of the second he called what? Ephraim. Okay, so now. Who was, who was born first in this family? Manasseh. Who was born second? Ephraim. If you can just remember, Ephraim was born second. That's all you need to remember. Right? Now go over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And look down at verse 9. And here's what he says. This is Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 9. It says, They shall come with weeping, supplications, I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. This is Jeremiah 31, 9. For I am a father of Israel. And look at this. What's it say? Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, we know that Ephraim isn't the oldest son. So in this context, he's using firstborn in a different way. In this context, firstborn simply means that the father has designated this child to be over everything that belongs to him. In other words... This is the son who inherits the father's property. Who is going to manage what the father owns. Everything that the father has is entrusted to this child. And that child, whatever his birth order was, is designated as firstborn, which means he has a rank that's above everybody else. He's superior to everybody else. In Psalm 89, it says David is firstborn. Wait a second. Jesse had a lot of kids. David was, David was the runt. But God says he's firstborn. Another place says he's the firstborn of kings. Firstborn of kings. Now wait a second. There was a king before David. Who was it? King Saul. Well, what does the firstborn here mean? It means he is above all others. Okay, now go back to Colossians, and when you see this, it starts to make sense. 
It says he is the firstborn, in verse 15, over all creation. He ranks above all creation. He manages all of creation. He is the one that reveals God to all of creation. He is God's image. Now why is he designated this way? Now look at verse 16. It tells us why he is designated as firstborn. For by him all things were what? Created. There's nothing that exists that he did not create. That are in heaven or that or are on earth. That means all of creation throughout the entire universe and all those other universes that scientists are discovering way out there light years away. Everything that is in existence, he created. Now look what else it says. Visible and invisible. People, things that you can see, trees, things you can't see, angels and demons, good and fallen, it doesn't matter what they are. Look at this. Keep on going. Visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, powers, principalities. We have visible thrones, don't we? Don't we have kings that are on thrones? Visible? Guess what? You also have invisible thrones and powers and principalities. You've got demons and angels and all these kinds of things. All that which is created, whether it's, in, it's good or whether it's rebelled against God and has fallen now, he created everything that exists. All-inclusive creation. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Now, we have three prepositions there in verse 16. First, by him all things were created. Some translations say in him all things were created. And then you have in verse 16, through him and for him. So guess what? First, all things were created by him. He conceived them. See? He's the architect. Here we see God's plan that was done by him. He planned it all. But it was done through him. He wasn't only the primary cause. It wasn't only done by him, the primary cause. But it was done through him. He's the instrumental cause. See? So he's not only the author of creation, he's the agent of creation. And then everything was created what? For him. The reason everything was created was to honor Christ. Or honor the Son, let's put it that way. So we see that uh, everything is to serve Him. Created by Him, or in Him, that's His plan. Through Him, that's His power. For Him, that's the purpose of creation. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. Everything that exists, and has ever exist, existed, was made in order to serve the Son. That was the purpose of creation, to serve the Son. Now, I think it's important when we talk about this that we be very careful because the words that are being used here are the Son, S-O-N, Son. 
Before anything existed, the Son existed. Doesn't say before everything existed, Jesus existed. Would you all agree with that? When did Jesus come into existence? Through the virgin birth. Jesus the man, the man Jesus came in through the virgin birth. Jesus didn't always exist. See, this gets confusing, doesn't it? Christ, which simply means what? Messiah. Messiah didn't always exist. Messiah was Israel's redeemer. But guess who has always existed? The Son has always existed. Now you're going to ask me to explain that. I can't. I shouldn't even have brought it up. <laughs> but somehow we believe that there's a trinity. The church has always believed that there's a trinity. We have creeds that we've formed saying that there's a trinity. There's a father, there's a son, there's a what? A father and a what? Son and Holy Spirit. And somehow the son came to earth. This is called the incarnation. And united with this body of Jesus that was created by God through the virgin birth. We do not understand any of this. All we can do is say it happened. Anybody has it figured out is so much smarter than I am and must be a philosopher because I cannot figure this out. But what we have here is that everything that's created, whether it's a visible throne, a king on the throne, or an invisible throne, it should, it was created to serve the sun. That means Caesar and his cohorts should be bowing to who? The son of God. But they aren't. They're claiming rule for themselves. Caesar and the Senate are claiming rule for themselves. Caesar claims to be the representative of God on earth, the image of God on earth. He is not. He's a counterfeit. Jesus is the image of God on earth. So this is information right here that we are, we know this is the truth. We're aware of this, that everything that was created was created by him, through him, and for him. And we know this, but guess what? Most people don't know that. This is inside information. Uh, Caesar wasn't, isn't aware that he should be bowing to the Son. <laughs> Caesar himself that doesn't even know there's a Son of God when this is written. He doesn't know that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus never met Caesar. Did you know that? Pontius Pilate met Caesar. Pontius Pilate met Jesus, but Caesar never met Jesus. Caesar's not aware that he should be doing this. But we've got inside information, and we're discovering from this passage that this is the nature of reality, and this is the purpose of creation. Even though the Romans and the non-Messianic Jews don't understand this, we understand it. Now look at verse 17. And he was before all things. Look at that. For anything existed, he existed. And in him all things consist. It's not Caesar who holds things together. It's not Caesar that's caught bringing about law and order through the military might. It's Christ that holds everything together. And uh, through the power of, of the Spirit. Okay? And uh, he's the one who will ultimately unite the world under one banner. And there will be total peace on earth under the banner of Christ one day. It's not... Caesar that holds everything together. So what we have here in these first verses is that Christ is 
ahead of all of creation. He's over all of creation. And guess what? That challenges Caesar's claim to be over all of creation. Caesar says, I control the entire known earth. Paul says, guess what? You think you do. Let me give you some inside information. The sun controls the entire earth. And not only the earth, even the heavens. And everything was created by, through, and for him. And then verse 18, we come to the second stanza. So this is a song that was sung in the church. Right after the Lord's Supper. And uh, verse 18, you find out that Christ is ahead of the church. Now look at verse 18. It says this. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's not only over natural creation, he's over a new creation. And this is something called the church. Something that didn't exist before. A new creation called the church. Now, two metaphors are used in this verse. The first is the word head in verse 18. He's the head. That's a metaphor which speaks of authority. Versus head of state. That means they are, they have the authority. The head of an academy is the one who has authority. Okay, so head represents, is a metaphor for authority. And then the second metaphor is the word body. Now what kind of body? Physical body? I don't think so. I think that we need to look at this word body in the sense of like body politic. Have you ever heard of that? Which uh, is, body politic is a group of people who are pol politically uh, organized under a single ruler or authority. That's called body politic. And Christ is ahead of a new creation, a new humanity, a new society that operates on a governmental system that's totally opposite of Romans. It operates on the principles of the kingdom of God. And he's over this, this organization, this new society, this new humanity. And he's the ruler of a new humanity, the church. So he rules the old creation, natural creation. He rules the new creation, which is the church, which is a, a new humanity. And the kingdom of God is manifested through the church, not through the Roman Empire. God's will is known and administered through this new humanity, this new society called the church. So he's ahead of that church. Now look at the purpose of all this. Look at verse 18. The head of the body, church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Now this is referring to the resurrection. This new humanity is created through the resurrection of Christ. He's the first new man. He's the first person of this new humanity in this new society. This kingdom of God-oriented society. And he has first place over now look at the purpose in all this. That, so that, in order that, in all things, through this church, he might have preeminence. That he might have preeminence. So the purpose is that he is preeminent over creation, he's preeminent over the new creation, the church, 
And the reason is, for all this is because, look at this, because, or for it pleased the Father, it pleased the Father, that in Him, that is the Son, all the fullness should dwell. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, that is repeated, that for in Him dwells all the fullness of the body of the Godhead Father. It pleased God that in Christ His presence would be none. His presence would dwell. So, it's not Caesar who represents God. It is, but that's what Caesar claims. He, he claims that it pleased Jupiter that through him Jupiter's will could be known and peace and order could come throughout the entire Roman Empire. But in verse 19 here it says, but it pleased the Father, that's the real God, that in him, that's the Son, the fullness should dwell. And not only that, it pleased the Father something else. That by him, that's the Son, to reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now notice that this reconciliation involves more than humans. Doesn't it? By him to reconcile what? All things to himself. You see, it's not only humans that need to be reconciled to God. It's not only humans that need to be redeemed. This earth itself needs to be redeemed. Everything that sin has touched has to be redeemed and reconciled. This whole earth is groaning, waiting for that day of redemption when Christ will return and the kingdom is set up upon the entire earth. And so here he's describing how God's ultimate goal is that through him, everything is going to be, and all things could mean all kinds of things, not just every single thing, all kinds of things, trees, earth, you know, everything needs to be reconciled, whether in heaven or on earth. Now look at verse 20. Tells how how this is going to come about. Having made peace. Look at this. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, how does Christ bring about peace compared to how Caesar brings about peace? How does Caesar bring about peace? Force. How does Christ bring about peace? By laying down his life and dying on the cross. Caesar brings about peace by force. Christ brings about peace through humiliation. He takes what they deal out to him. And they put him on the cross and he dies. And it's through his death on the cross that this reconciliation it takes place. Now when Caesar killed Christ, he killed God's representative. Would you agree with that? The fact that he killed God's representative shows you that Caesar does not represent God. By killing Christ, Caesar is exposed for what he is, a phony. By using force, he's exposed for what he is, a bully. Take somebody who's really done nothing worthy of death, just kill him. 
And he's exposed basically as a bully. Now, Caesar's way of bringing about peace, he says in his mind, I'm going to stamp out this Jesus movement. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to take the lead and I'm just going to kill him. That's how, that's how I'll bring peace. These people are causing chaos in my empire. I can eliminate that real quick. Go arrest him. Kill him. Okay. Ah, I took care of that. Now we're back to peace. And guess what God does? Three days later, what does God do? Raises Jesus from the dead. And guess what? We discover that Caesar's means of establishing peace doesn't quite work the way he thinks it would. And Jesus is now raised from the dead. And if he's raised from the dead, can they kill him again? Who's the victim? Jesus or Caesar? God's kingdom or Roman's king? Roman kingdom. God's kingdom. And this proves that Jesus is the ruler over everything. And uh, it exposes Caesar for what he is. So Caesar thought that he could squash this Jesus movement. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God showed the limitation of Rome's power and Rome's peace plan. It really doesn't work. And when Jesus was put to, on the cross and raised from the dead, guess what that did? That galvanized the disciples. It brought them together. They went out on a mission to spread the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, which was the opposite of Roman peace. And Roman's days, Roman, the Roman Empire's days were numbered with the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. It was, it, was, it was living on borrowed time. And today, where is the Roman Empire? Do you know it? you know where it is? I don't think there is a Roman Empire, is there? Where is the church? And we're right here today. Say, this is God's peace plan. Now, just let me uh, conclude with a word about violence. Okay. Just a word about using force and violence. Violence rarely, if ever, produces a lasting peace. Let me just say that again. Violence rarely, if ever, produces a lasting peace. All it does is produce a law. L-U-L-L. Until that next generation rises up and goes after the people who defeated the previous generation. <coughs> That is not the way to bring about peace, peace through violence. The way God's plan of bringing about universal peace was just the opposite. Instead of using violence, Christ faced the cross, a violent act against him, and instead of fighting back and said, well, we'll take over the Roman Empire, me and my men. And that what he said? If my kingdom was in this world, what would I do? My men would pick up swords and we'd fight you. He said, I'm, that's not what I'm going to do. Instead of fighting back and using peace to establish his kingdom, he stands there in faith, trusting his father. And they put him to death and they said, we got rid of him. And then guess what? Three days later, the father raised him up and who won the battle? Jesus won the battle. And guess what? He's going to establish peace on this earth. And it's all done through this act of humiliation, act of faith, trusting his father without ever lifting a sword, there will be universal peace on the earth. That's the good news of the gospel peace that's taught through Jesus Christ. And any time we think that we can use peace, to use violence, to get what we want, 
We're fooling ourselves. It's a short-term victory. So this is the song that they sang on a Sunday night when they had their meal. And the content of that song is a subversive. It's subversive. It's seditious. It's against the government. To sing that Jesus rules the world and not Caesar, guess what? That's a subversive song, isn't it? That's a song that will get you in jail. Is that the kind of songs we sing? Songs that will throw us in jail if someone outside hears them? See, this is the, this is the kind of worship that the church was involved in. And every time we sing songs, this is how we should be thinking. We should be thinking the way they sang. They sang this song and they thought, God is going to rule the world. Caesar's days are numbered. When we sing a song about the kingdom of God or the future, we should be saying the same thing. We should be thinking, King, when we sing this song, Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But guess what? Our kingdom will last forever. We should be thinking in those terms every time we sing a song. Not just singing words by rote and not even thinking or engaging in the lyrics. Because most of our Christian songs are saying basically the same thing as this. They're saying, Jesus is Lord, right? And if Jesus is Lord, guess what? No other dictator, no president of the United States... No one else has the authority. They think they do. They think they can control things. They think they can use violence and solve problems. But guess what? It's all a failed project. And in the end, it's going to be Christ who rules over everything and everyone's going to acknowledge it. And that's the way the early church did worship. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up next week at verse 21. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. Uh, help us to think through our worship uh, today in church as we sing. Help us to say, is this a song that was sung during the first century we land the Christians in jail? This song that's being sung today, ask, may we ask, is this a song that proclaims Jesus is Lord and that all others who demand our allegiance are wrong. Help us to uh, sing our songs with understanding, Lord. Help us to realize that in its essence, worship is political. Every time we say Jesus is Lord, that's a political statement. Help us to realize that worship, every time we worship, it's a subversive act against the kingdoms of this world. We want to control things as if there is no God. Oh, Lord, help us to be as active and as engaged in worship as the early church was.